The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, if you notice in your bulletin this evening, we have a rather large portion of the book of Exodus to, to get through this evening. We are actually going to cover, as our sermon text, uh, chapters 35, verse 30, through chapter 39, verse 43. But if I read that entire text, that's all we would do. So, this evening we will only read the very beginning of our text and the very end of our text. And then I will hit the highlights, as it were, as we consider the construction of the tabernacle this evening. We're going to begin our reading then in chapter 35, verse 30. And then we'll pick up again in chapter 39 in just a few moments. This is the word of the Lord. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for the work in which every to work rather for work in which in every skilled craft excuse me and he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholahab the son of Asha excuse me Ashishamak that's a hard name to say of the tribe of Dan and he's filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twine linen, or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholahab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And then turn with me, if you will, over to chapter 39. And we'll pick up reading there in verse 32. Chapter 39, verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, and the covering of tan ramskins and goatskins, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamp set and all its utensils. And the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, 
So the people of Israel had done all the work. And the Lord, and rather, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. This is the reading of God's word. Let's go to him and ask for his blessing upon our time this evening. Heavenly Father, as we consider now the construction of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the place where you desire to dwell with your people, we pray, O Lord, that we would again see your grace and your glory displayed before us, and we would once again be pointed to the ultimate display of that grace and glory in the life and in the death and in the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever had a teacher like this, but I I had a professor in seminary who may have been described as a bit repetitive. And he was particularly repetitive when it came to particular topics, topics which, of course, he thought were important. And there was one particular phrase that he would often say as we were making our way through, perhaps we were in a survey class and we were just reading a large portion of the English text and discussing particular sections of it, or perhaps we were exegeting something from the original languages, but it seemed like in every class I had with this brother, he would always find a place to insert one of his favorite comments. And he would always find a place when we arrived at some difficulty to say something like this, brothers, always remember No matter what the grammar looks like, how difficult it is, no matter how obscure the text seems, always remember that the most important principle in biblical interpretation is context. Context, context, context. And he would say that. At first, it was maybe a bit annoying. He said it so much. And then after a while, maybe it's almost to the point of being ad nauseum. You get used to hearing it maybe every 10, 15, 20 minutes. Context, context, context. And you begin to think, does he ever say anything else? Does he ever have anything else to add? But as I've gotten older and as I've studied the Word of God more and as I've preached more, the more I have become convinced that that brother was absolutely right. The key in many places to interpreting a difficult section of Scripture is context. Now, as I reflected upon that this evening, I reflected upon the reality that the reason why he was so repetitive, the reason why he constantly was saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again was that he saw the absolute importance of that principle. You see, something similar to that is happening this evening as we turn our attention to chapters 36 in particular and through 39 of the book of Exodus. You see, everything that we read here is going to sound eerily familiar. And the reason for that is simply this. You've heard it before. Much of of it that lays before us here, you've actually heard almost verbatim in chapters 25 through 31 of the book of Exodus. 
You see, what Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has done here for us again, is he has again given us a very detailed and precise review of the entire tabernacle, all of its structures, the outer court, the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, all of the various pieces of furniture, everything. He has again given us in great detail one more look at the tent of meeting. And we may be wondering to ourselves, well, what is going on here? Well, I want to say to you this evening, brothers, that Moses is not some B student undergraduate who feels like he needs to fill off the rest of the book of Exodus with fluff so he just repeats himself. That's not his point. What Moses is doing here is he is trying to impress upon us the absolute essential nature of understanding the importance of the tabernacle in the context of the book of Exodus. If you think about it for a moment, a full 15 chapters with the exception of chapter 32 through 34 at the end of the book of Exodus are taken up with the topic of the tabernacle. And friends, even just the sheer amount of text that we have before us dealing with the tabernacle would be enough perhaps to impress upon us the importance of this particular element of God's old covenant worship. And yet... Moses has seen Finn again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to hit this thing one more time with an immense amount of detail. And the takeaway from that, brethren, at a very high level, is simply this. That the tabernacle is of absolute importance. It is absolutely at the heart and the soul of the message of the book of Exodus. You see, the book of Exodus tells us about the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. Yes, of course. That's what people think about when they think about the book of Exodus. But what too many people don't understand is that the book of Exodus doesn't just tell us about God's actions as he delivers the people out of bondage, but it tells us about God's desire to dwell in the midst of his people. And we have hit that theme over and over again, but brethren, we see even here as we have all of this text, again, almost verbatim restatements of what we have already heard, that we cannot hit this topic enough. It is absolutely essential that we understand this principle, this important element in the book of Exodus. And thus this evening, I want us, even though we're not going to do what we did previously when we explored the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle, we actually preached about nine sermons on the instructions for the tabernacle. Tonight, we're going to cover it all in one. And what I'm wanting to do as we do that is I simply want to hit some of the high points of the text that lay before us. In two cases, I want to highlight things which we have already seen. And in one case, I want to highlight something else. Uh, These three aspects, though, that I do want to highlight as we survey the text at a very high level are simply this. I I want us to see first that the tabernacle is constructed by and under the guidance of the Spirit of God. The tabernacle is constructed by and under the guidance of the Spirit of God. And second, I want us to see that the tabernacle is not only constructed under the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God, but it's constructed in accordance with the Word of God. And that, of course, is reiterated to us a number of times in the text, even the sections that we read right now. And then thirdly, I want us to hit that major emphasis, which I've already spoken about one more time. 
The tabernacle is not only constructed by the guidance of God's spirit, it's not only constructed in accordance with God's word, but it's constructed in preparation for the coming of God's presence in the midst of his people. And as we highlight these three things, I want us to meditate and to consider the importance of this tent of meeting. And I want us to remember all of the various aspects of it and how it points us to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in which we see most perfectly displayed for us God's desire to dwell in the midst of his people. Uh, Let's begin then by considering, first of all, that the tabernacle is constructed under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit. We see that there in the first several verses of our text, actually the very end of chapter 35. You see there that there are two men here who are called specifically out from amongst the people of God, by God, by name, through Moses. Oh, we note that there, Beziel and Aholiab, they are brought out, they are called out as those who will be, if you will, the foremen who will oversee the work of the tabernacle. You note that they're not doing all the work themselves, but they have actually been particularly gifted to oversee and to act as the supervisors of the work. We know that these are probably men who had some previous skill in the work that they were called to do here. Most likely, they previously had worked. They had previously been those who had been craftsmen, who had worked with gold and with wood, and they had some knowledge of this already, or fabric in the one case. But the Lord calls them out, and he makes them overseers for all of the work that needs to be done in the midst of the tabernacle. But he doesn't only call these two men out. You note that, very importantly, he also equips them. And we note that there in the text. We see that the Lord says in verse 31 that he fills, here in this case, Beziel, but he will say it again of Aholab, that he fills him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. To devise, excuse me, to devise artistic design, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in the cutting of stone, for setting and in carving wood, for every work and skillful craft. And then he goes on in verse 34 to say that he has inspired him to teach. Now you see the function that these two men are to have. They are both inspired by the Spirit. They are gifted particularly by the Spirit to oversee the work. And the way that the Spirit has gifted them particularly to do this work is by giving to them the knowledge, the intelligence, the wisdom which is required for the work that the Lord has called them to do. But not only has he called them to have this knowledge and wisdom, but he's called them to communicate it to others. He's called them to be men who were empowered by his spirit to teach others so that the work might be completed. It wasn't only these two men who were to do the work. It was an act of the whole body of Israel. Indeed, those who had any skills related to the necessary work were meant to participate. And even in this very early portion of our text, I think we see a very important truth highlighted for us. We see, first of all, that the Lord, whenever he desires his people to do a work, well, not only does he call men out to lead them in that work, but he sends his spirits to equip them for that work. You know what he's done here. He's called the people of Israel to a very detailed, a very difficult work, really. 
Now, this was not an easy tent to construct. This was not like putting together your Coleman when you go camping. This was a difficult work. There was a great deal of craftsmanship that was needed. And yet the Lord, having inspired these two men, not only calls the people to the task, but he equips them for the task. I think there's an application for us right off the bat there, isn't there? You see, the Lord, as he calls his people to work in this world, also empowers them to do the work that he's called them to. Now, we could say the same thing is true for us today that was true for these two men, for the people of Israel, as they sought to construct the tabernacle on that day. The Spirit of God is still at work in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish the mission which God has called us to. Think about it for a moment. You can remember back in those very earliest days of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as they waited in the upper room. And what did they wait for? Well, they waited for the Spirit of God to come upon them, to empower them to go forth and to accomplish the commission that the Lord Jesus Christ had called them to accomplish. And brethren, there is a great deal of Uh, of comfort in a text like this, isn't there? That reminds us again of the Lord's insistence that when he calls his people to a work, he equips them for that work. But it's also interesting to note here, and a number of commentators highlight this, that what we see here is fitting. It's fitting that the Spirit would be at work in the construction of the tabernacle. We've noted the connection with the New Testament. Of course, the Spirit, in a very real sense, is at work in the church to build up the living temple of the the Lord God in the New Covenant age, isn't he? He's at work to build us up. And we, of course, are the dwelling place of God. But if we cast our minds back to the very opening portions of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, we can think for a moment of what we learn in those places about the work of the Spirit. Remember that it was the Spirit of God who hovered over the face of the deep before the Lord began really to craft and to make the world in the way that he would bring it into shape and being. And many commentators point this out. We've noted in the past that there are parallels that exist between the tabernacle and heaven. There are parallels that exist between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden. Indeed, there are parallels that exist between the tabernacle and all of the creation. And there is a sense in which we see here God at work through his spirit to initiate a new creation. A new time where he is going to come and he is going to recreate in the sense that he will restore and bring about a place where he is able to come and to dwell with man once again in a way that he has not done since the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle is constructed under the guidance of the Spirit of God. But the tabernacle also is constructed in accordance with God's command. Now, this should be obvious even from the last portion of the text that we read in chapter 39, but if we were to read this entire section and to go back and forth, what we would see immediately is that everything that God had commanded Moses to do on the mountain, 
everything that God had told Moses must be done in the construction of the tabernacle is meticulously executed by the people of Israel. You see, they are extremely careful to do exactly what God would have them to do. They seek to build the tabernacle in strict adherence with the command of God. We see that, for instance, in chapter 36 as we consider the construction of the tent. That passage exactly parallels chapter 26 where God gave the instructions for the construction of the tent. We see it again as we move into the description of the construction of the furniture in chapter 37. We see the ark made exactly the way in chapter 37 that chapter 25 called him to make it. We see the table made exactly the way in chapter 37 that chapter 25 told the people of Israel to make it. We see the lampstand is the same thing exactly in accordance with chapter 25. Again, the altar of incense exactly in accordance with chapter 30. We see, as we move forward to chapter 38, the construction of the outer court. Again, exactly how God called for it to be made in chapter 27. Uh, The same is true for the altar of burnt uh, offering, as well as the bronze basin and the court itself. All given previously in the book of Exodus. Now, all of it is built to exact specification, so that it would conform perfectly to the instructions of the Lord. And of course, that's the same for the priestly garments as well in chapter 29. The author of the book of Exodus has gone out of his way to impress upon us the reality that the people of God took no liberties as they sought to make the tabernacle of God. It's extremely important that we understand that. This is why so many times in these chapters we hear something like this, that they had done it as the Lord had commanded it to be done. It's a repetition throughout the passage. They did exactly as the Lord commanded them to do. It is forcefully communicated to us in exact and precise detail that the people of God constructed the tabernacle of God in accordance with the word of God. They didn't turn to the left or to the right. They did it exactly as they were supposed to do it. And brethren, I think the important thing for us to take away here is simply that when God desires us to do his will, he desires it to be done with exactness and precision. That's the emphasis that we see before us. Not only whenever it comes to the worship of God, that's important. It's extremely important that we see the way the people responded to God's commands here. And we see the way that they sought to be zealous in executing God's decree exactly according to the way it was meant to be executed, or his command rather. They do that in regards to his worship, and that is important. We know that. We believe in the regulative principle of worship. We believe that we should only worship God in a way that he has commanded. And in a very real sense, the way that they execute the construction of the tabernacle is a reinforcement of that principle. God wants to be worshipped the way he wants to be worshipped. They understand that. And they seek to act in accordance to that. But it doesn't just extend to God's worship, brethren. It extends to all of life. God desires for us to be cautious, careful, and precise as we interpret his word and seek to live 
in accordance with it. And we see the result of that kind of faithfulness to God's word as we get to the very end of the passage, don't we? We see there the very last phrase of the chapter, then Moses blessed them. It's not an accident. They did what the Lord had commanded them and they received from the hand of the mediator blessing because they were cautious and careful to do what God commanded. It also points out to us yet again something that we have made note of a number of times if we have surveyed or as we've really made our way through in a great deal of detail actually the instructions for the tabernacle. You'll remember that at various points we made a we made the point that there is great detail given. There's great detail given by God to Moses as to how the tabernacle is to be constructed. And we are again reminded here, I believe, why that is the case. Why is it the case that God demanded such precision in the construction of the tabernacle? I I think the answer to that question is pretty obvious if you think about it for a moment. Every single aspect of the tabernacle was meant to teach us something about God. Every single part of the tabernacle was meant to communicate to us something about God's desire to dwell in the midst of sinners. We can think for a moment about the altars. We think about the bronze altar that was outside of the tabernacle. We talked about how that pointed to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in making atonement, making sacrifice for our sins. We talked about how when we move inside and we see the altar of incense, that we see a picture of the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about how we see reflected in the material that was prescribed for the creation of the tabernacle, that we see a reflection of the glory of God. We're reminded of how as you move to the inner sanctuary, as it were, of the tabernacle, the the elements that are used become increasingly more precious and increasingly more valuable. We talked about how the inside of the tabernacle would glow, as it were. It would be a glorious room in which the glory of God was reflected. We talked about the veils and how the veils symbolized our separation from God. The fact that sinful man cannot come into the presence of a holy God except by the means of sacrifice. Every single detail. Everything from the pegs that were used, to the pillars, to the tent, to the utensils, to the furniture, every single aspect of this construction was meant to communicate something powerful and profound about the nature and the character of the God of Israel. And as they execute God's decrees with such precision, they recognize that. Because to make a mistake in the construction of the tabernacle would be to make a mistake in the way that we communicate really about who God is and what his desire is for his people. So they constructed the tabernacle in accordance with the command of God. But the tabernacle is not only constructed under the guidance of the spirits and in accordance with God's command, but it's constructed... Again, and really most importantly this evening for us to consider, in preparation for the presence of God in the midst of his people. If we think about that, it's something of an implication.
from the text before us. We have referred to this teaching on a number of occasions throughout the book of Exodus that really the ultimate goal that is envisioned here in the construction of this tent of meeting is just that, that God would meet with his people. And even as we consider all that we would read if we were to consider all of these texts one by one from chapter 35 or the end of chapter 35 all the way through chapter 39, we would see in great detail how the construction of the tabernacle was accomplished, but we would be meant to look forward again to what the tabernacle was purposed for. We are meant, even as we consider how much of this text is, again, literally almost verbatim restatement of what we've heard before. We are meant to consider, as we look at that, at the sheer repetition of this text. We are meant to look at that and we are meant to consider just how important the tabernacle is. And we are simply to remember how important it is that God has desired to dwell in the midst of his people. The author of the book of Exodus did not tell us about the crossing of the Red Sea twice. He didn't tell us about the Passover twice. He didn't tell us about the plagues twice. But he told us about the tabernacle twice. There's something powerful about that, isn't there? There's something powerful when you consider that the focus of the book of Exodus, amazingly, isn't as sharp upon the deliverance that God accomplished for his people as he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Obviously, that is a focus of the book. It's a great truth that we see there that the Lord's people are delivered out of bondage and out of oppression. Of course, that typifies our deliverance out of the bondage and oppression of sin. And yet the Lord tells us that once, and that's sufficient. God doesn't again retell to us how he brings the people of Israel through the wilderness and teaches them over and over and over again that he is a God who can provide for them, that he is a God who can protect them. He doesn't feel the need to recount that section of the book verbatim once again. But under the guidance of the Holy Spirit... Moses was led to tell us about the tabernacle in great detail twice. Think about what that signifies. I was thinking about that this week and I was thinking to myself, what would I say to someone if they came to me and they said, what is the the chief benefit that you receive from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'll ask you that question now. I don't mean for you to answer out loud. But I'll ask it to you and consider it for a moment. What would you say to someone? Would you say, well, praise God, I am forgiven of my sin? Because that would be a good thing to say. It would be. Would you even go a step further and say, well, because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and my faith in him, I now am righteous in the sight of God and am no longer under his condemnation. Again, a wonderful thing to say. But I wonder how many of us would say that because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, now I have fellowship and communion with God. Brethren, God is at the center 
of the gospel. The sinner is not the forgiveness of sins. It's it's not even the righteousness we receive. Those are both, in a very serious sense, means to an end. And the end to which they're means of is, is so that we can once again have communion with God. And that's what we see here in this repetition of the construction of the tabernacle as it's laid out for us again. The people of Israel are yet again reminded that the chief benefit of all they have experienced as they have seen the glory of God manifest in so many ways, as He has struck down their enemies, as He has split seas in two, as He has delivered them miraculously through the wilderness, all of that pales in comparison to the chief benefit which they receive. They receive the blessing of being able to dwell in the presence of God. Brethren, that's the focus. That's the point. That's what everything in this book revolves around. And the fact that author of, or that Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in chapters 35 through 39 of the book of Exodus, decides to tell us verbatim again about the construction of the tabernacle in exacting detail. All of that is meant to point us to the reality that what we see happening in the construction of the tabernacle is the preparation for the most glorious thing that could be possible for a sinner. It's the preparation for the coming of the presence of God in their midst. Beloved, that is a beautiful truth. It's a beautiful truth. It's powerful when we think about it that way, I think. It doesn't become boring repetition. It becomes remarkable, really that the God of all glory and grace desires to show grace to sinners such as us. And that's what chapter 39 looks forward to. And what we'll see next week as we turn to chapter 40 and we see there, I'll jump ahead just a little bit because I have to. We'll see the climax of the book of Exodus. When the Lord God of Israel comes down, this time not on the mountain, not on Mount Sinai where where only Moses can go and be in His presence, but He comes down not on the mountain far removed from His people, but in the middle of His people. Brethren, that is the point of the text tonight, to prepare us for the coming of the preparations, or the coming rather of, of this presence. But it's not only the point this evening, it's the point of the entire book of Exodus. Because as we said at the beginning of the book, the book of Exodus is about the solution to the greatest problem that every man, woman, and child born after the fall into sin has in this world. And that is that we are alienated from our God. And here we are prepared to see in a typological way that points us forward to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the remedy to that problem. Here we are pointed forward to the work of our Savior, the one who came. And as Pastor Holst has noted before, the Gospel of John tells us, 
He tabernacled, he dwelled in our midst. He is the one who came, who came as the eternal Son of God to live in the midst of sinners, and who came as the eternal Son of God to give up himself as a sacrifice for sin, so that we, having faith in him and being united to him by that faith, might become the place, the inhabitants of the God of all creation. To have Him in our midst, to have Him in our hearts, this is what this text points us to, beloved. Let us therefore rejoice in Exodus chapter 35 through 39 and remember the grace that God has shown to us in it. Amen.